This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. The name of this message is a little heavy, I have to admit. 16 days to extinction. I don't know if you guys know what happens in 16 days from now. But uh, the enemy has played this up quite larger than life. And I think many of us feel it, that there is some threshold that we are coming to that marks a clear direction one way or the other. As I've oftentimes said, Christianity, if it, when it gets its game on, is going to bring one of two results. Either revival is going to break out on this earth, or they're going to erect crosses and hang us on them afresh. That when Christianity actually does what Christianity is meant to do, it forges either change or offense. It does not limp its way through and create non-action or passivity, it forces decision. Either you kill me or you believe me. (laughs) Uh, Most of us do not want to live our Christianity at that heightened level, which is why we will seek the lukewarm condition lest we burn the world around us and cause issue for ourselves. So as a result, we have a tendency to turn down the heat on our Christian witness lest we create offense, lest we create drama for our life. We don't want that. I just want to be comfortable. I just want to live my life in peace. And I don't blame you. That, that's a God desire. God, I don't think God is desiring us to just go out and say, hey, I want to have a whole bunch of drama and a whole bunch of difficulty. At the same time, because the glory of God is at stake, we deliberately say, God, I'm willing to give up my comforts that you would be known. So we have to put off a first. We have to put off a first mentality, and we have to clothe ourselves in a new way of thinking and living. I was in a, on a panel with a whole bunch of Living Waters guys yesterday. They're the uh, Ray Comfort and his team And to be honest, I I felt very small and weak in the midst of that panel, and I felt very cowardly. I don't know if that would make sense to you, but when I hear that band of guys who's one of them, I mean, Ray had just gotten back from Huntington Beach sharing the gospel that morning. Uh, One of them was on his way, so he's like on the call with his camera, you know, his phone mounted somehow on his dash, and he's like driving to Huntington Beach because if he could do anything in his life, he wants to be on Huntington Beach reaching lost people. That's like pleasure for him. It's like, hmm. Uh, I'm not exactly sure if I could say the same, that that is the one place I want to be right now is with lost people sharing Jesus. And so in a strange sense, I felt an old set of shoes on that God was saying, are you willing to take those off? I want you to discover what that is. Where the greatest delight in your life is to be a bearer of the good news. Not to just not have difficulty in your life, and that is what you're after. 
but to be after lost souls. That is what you're after. And so I think it's important that we all sort of reach that point of decision where we cannot stay as we once were. You either stay in the wilderness and die, or you press on where the cloud is moving. God is moving, and he says it's time to cross. It's time to enter into the newness of the land. It is time to enter into battle. We look at the crossing of the Jordan you know, with Joshua, and we're like, oh, good. They get to go into the land flown with milk and honey. Finally, what we fail to oftentimes realize is it's a season of war, a long season of war. And so if you were in the wilderness and you had sort of your peace, you know, because no one really cares about you as long as you're in the wilderness. You're not a threat to them as long as you're in the wilderness. And you have your manna daily. Okay, maybe you don't like manna that much, but hey, you have it daily. Your shoes aren't wearing out. Your clothes aren't wearing out. You know, not a lot of financial demands on you right now. This is not a bad situation. Pretty good setup. Time to fold up shop. We're moving on. Whoa, to what? War. Whoa! So by taking off my shoes, that's what I'm saying. Lord, prepare these hands for war. Prepare my heart for war. Prepare my mind for war. Not the sort of war that we see in an earthly sense. It's a spiritual war. It is a war where I'm not taking out people. I'm taking out spiritual powers and principalities. But to do that, I must engage at a level of weakness where I humble myself, where I fast and I pray where I am willing to wrestle in a way that doesn't necessarily bring comfort to me, but it brings results in this world. 16 days to extinction. November 3rd, 2020, election day. It's a line of demarcation that we all sense is there. And we don't know which way it's going. We don't know if... Uh, if worldwide revivals break it out or if they're building crosses for us. It's like, whoa, we, we have, it's sort of hard to know how to prepare, right? When you don't know what's going on. However, you can prepare. You can prepare to be ready to give Jesus, no matter what. You see, we're putting off old shoes and we're ready to engage a world with Jesus. We're not gonna cower and, you know, some people are already thinking about building their bomb shelters and hiding in them. It's like, it's the exact opposite direction the Holy Spirit wants to take us. Holy Spirit says, hey, let's rise up and let's cross the Jordan. We have a job to do. Let's take some land. Well, God, this is, this is uh, dangerous. This is difficult. We could lose our life. What's different? Have you ever studied Christian history? This is the story of Christian history. The boldness of the apostles to go into the world, they all died. But they did it joyfully. 16 days to extinction. So here's, here's what I want to say. First of all, the devil wants to give the notion that we are, that the church is like falling to pieces. It's going bye-bye. And, you know, for all practical purposes, if we look at it on paper, you know, it's not like the devil isn't giving us some good data. That's a good fact right there. That, that's true. And even we could compare notes and say, so has the church gotten stronger in the last six, seven months? No, have you seen a great rising up of strength in the church or have you seen sort of a petering out of strength? Many of us have looked around and we're like, where, where are the leaders right now? Who's gonna stand up and be bold? And we could say, I mean, other than Donald Trump. 
Come on. Give us someone in the church of Jesus Christ that's going to be bold. Someone who's going to represent Jesus Christ right now, right here, for such an hour as this. It's a craving that we have. Isn't that interesting? And we're looking around the room, and of course we know it's not us that God's choosing. It has to be someone. Where are they? The ancient conspiracy to destroy righteousness. By the way, this is an ancient thing. This isn't a new thing just popping out uh, in 2020 where there is a conspiracy to destroy righteousness. Okay, that's what we see happening around us, but it's an ancient conspiracy. So let's go back uh, to the book of Esther, and what you're going to see is a conspiracy to destroy righteousness, to destroy that which God has selected to reveal his glory. He chose the Jewish people, and through that line, he is going to reveal the king of kings. He's going to reveal righteousness. They're carriers. So Esther 3, 13 through 14, Haman has his plot, his plan. He's offended by Mordecai, but if he's going to take out Mordecai, he might as well take them all out. And so as a result, he has sort of duped the king into creating an edict, and all the Jews are going to perish in one day. So it may not have been the countdown of 16 days, but there was a countdown immediately, and it was a countdown to extinction. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. Isn't it funny? All, all we would typically need is the word destroy, but they're going to use three words, destroy, to kill, and to annihilate <laughs> all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. Are, are you ready for the day? The edict's been published. You're going down. Truth and righteousness is no longer favored in this country, and anyone who dares stand with it, we already know. We've already read the edict, haven't we? We already know the decided opinion. We are out. I don't know, maybe you guys haven't read the memo, but Christianity is passe. It's no longer valid in our culture. We've moved past that. If you dare try and carry it forward in this generation, well, you know what, I don't want to tell you it's going to be serious repercussions, but I'm going to hint and infer that it will be. So look at the response. In Esther 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, and then in 4, we're going to see Mordecai's response, and we're going to see Esther's response. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. So there is a very real response amongst the righteous to this movement and this conspiracy of evil. Look at this one. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. And so one of the, the struggles I have faced is knowing how to respond as a Christian man to what is taking place. Because I see something beautiful being soiled and trashed. I see something wonderful. This nation has been the factory for missions. We have sent more missionaries than any nation in history into all the world to preach the gospel. This very nation is now exporting evil, exporting immorality and sensuality more than any other nation on earth. What has happened to this incredible experiment known as America? 
a country based in a freedom, based around Christian, Judeo-Christian values that could actually change not just the people that live here, but other nations. We could shine light. Something has extinguished. Has God forsaken this country? Okay, imagine the Jews back in Esther's day. Has God forsaken us? Has God forsaken this country? So I don't know, some of you may remember, I, I haven't shared this for quite a few years, but I had a conversation with Leonard Ravenhill's two sons uh, a while ago. And I was helping them with some publishing issue, some, some uh, rights issue with one of their publishers, one of their dad's books. And so one of, David Ravenhill is, is, is a man that lives here in the States and his brother, I cannot remember his name off the top of my head, lives in another country uh, in South America. And his, his brother was on the phone. They both sound just like their dad. It's weird uh, when you talk to him. And, but his brother basically was asking why we are still in America. Don't you realize that er America had an expiration date and it is passed? Get out. It's a very interesting thing, especially when it's the voice of Leonard Ravenhill. It wasn't Leonard Ravenhill, but it's the voice of Leonard Ravenhill speaking it. And I have a very high veneration for Leonard Ravenhill. And it's speaking to me, and it was interesting for me to deal with that because it's the same question. Has God forsaken this country? Why do I care so much for the church here in this land? Why do I care that the tide turn in favor of righteousness? Here's my conclusion, and I still hold to it. It's because the Spirit of God cares. Because why, I, don't, I wouldn't naturally care about the church of Jesus Christ. I've, I've received far more pain than almost anything else from the church of Jesus Christ in America, and yet I love it. I care deeply about it. I desire it to be healthy. That, to me, is supernatural, so I'm going with it. Even though I look at the landscape, it makes total sense. Yeah, the expiration date is passed. Even when I pray for mercy, I always have to acknowledge to God, I know we don't deserve it. I know we deserve judgment. I know we do. What we are doing in this country is heinous. It is evil. And yet, Lord Jesus, could you turn us again? We've had awakenings in the past. I know we don't deserve another one. But Lord, here's my humble plea. Not because we deserve it, but because you are a merciful God and mercy triumphs over judgment. Please, show mercy. Psalm 12, 1. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. So when you're staring at our nation, Psalm 12, 1 matches well. Michael Spencer, who's a futurist, this is uh, over 10 years ago. That's what's interesting about this, okay? It's, but it's right at the start of Ellerslie. I gave a message called Majesty Lost, and I quoted him. Quoted this. This was on the screen 10 years ago. And listen, we are on the verge within 10 years of a major collapse of evangelical Christianity. This breakdown will follow the deterioration of the mainline Protestant world and it will fundamentally alter the religious and cultural environment in the West. Within two generations, evangelicalism will be a house deserted of half its occupants. Millions of evangelicals will quit. Thousands of ministries will end. Christian media will be reduced if not eliminated. Many Christian schools will go into rapid decline. So what I'm going to say is on paper, I understand what he's saying. He's actually a fairly smart guy. 
Yeah, okay, I see it. I see it on paper. But what happens on paper is very different than what happens in the heavenly realms. You see, when you look at things just from man's view, Christianity should have died off a long time ago. And yet here we are. So, Michael, thank you for your input. Sam Harris, neuroscientist, a man who wouldn't necessarily be very supportive of our gathering this morning. He says, at some point, clinging to a belief in God is just going to be too embarrassing. And you see it happening. You see it happening. I, I quoted this 10 years ago. And it has become embarrassing to hold to a belief in God. Well, I should say more so than ever before. You see the trends. You see where America is going. Gary Wolf, he's sort of a champion and a leader behind something called the New Atheists. The New Atheists are not like the old atheists. The New Atheists are militant. They believe that if they truly are right, that there is no God, then the greatest enemy of sanity in this world is this thing called faith. So they want to exterminate the idea of faith aggressively. So he's basically uh, one of their captains. It is time to declare our positions. This is the challenge posed by the new atheists. We are called upon. We lax agnostics. We non-committal non-believers. We vague deists. We are called out. We fence-sitters and told to help exercise this debilitating curse, the curse of faith. Thank you, Gary. So what we have is we have a militant movement against everything we hold dear. And so we're actually seeing this realized in our world, where Gary Wolf's voice is much stouter than any Christian pastor's voice. We don't have a, uh, a Billy Graham anymore that just causes even the politicians to all silence when he comes into the room. And they'll show a regard and a respect for a man who has lived it and who has thundered this gospel message for generations. We don't have that anymore. We lack the strength of the heritage that we represent. Oh, we look weak right now. And the enemy knows it. And the enemy is moving in to pounce. The ancient conspiracy to destroy righteousness. Yeah, that's a copy of a previous slide. You know that there's always been a, a conspiracy to destroy righteousness? Yeah, it's there. I'm going to show you uh, one of those conspiracies. Mark eleven eighteen, 18, and the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. So you're going to see, and I could have given you all sorts of quotes on this through the New Testament. They are going to conspire. They're going to hatch plans. They're going to get one of his closest to betray his location for 30 pieces of silver. They are conspiring to destroy righteousness. However, what you're going to see in this, the story of Esther, what you're going to see in the story of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, is what looks like the destruction of righteousness is going to actually be turned into the destruction of evil. Just remember that. Does our God care? Because that's one of the key questions we have. Does God even care about what's going on? He sure does seem silent right now. We as the church, I know here at Ellerslie, have been praying aggressively for divine intervention for such a time as this. Does God care? We get a peek into God's heart 
in the book of Ezekiel. And I'll say it this way. Oh, he cares. In fact, a lot more than we do. See, this accusation that God doesn't care is so far from the truth. God cares at such an exquisite level, at a level that we could not fathom. His nervous system in how it picks up all of this darkness encroaching upon his people, his church, his world, his redeemed, is he's deeply sensitized to it. It's called a burden. It's called a grief. It's called anguish. So in Ezekiel, we're going to see something. I'll, I'll just read it just so you can be brought into it. Such darkness has moved upon the world at this exact time. His people have turned away from him, and he has done exactly as he promised. They have fallen into the hands of evil men. They were taken captive, and now they are captives in Babylon. And so this is during the Babylonian captivity, and even the way Jerusalem is being treated back home is darkness. It is evil. It is anti-Christ, as we would term it. It is against the work of the Messiah. So what God is looking for is someone who will see what he sees and, feels, and feel what he feels. And he finds a man named Ezekiel. It came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, as I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord fell on me there. Then I looked, and behold, a likeness is the appearance of a man. From his loins and downward, there was the appearance of fire, and from his loins and upward, the appearance of brightness, like the appearance of glowing metal. He stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by a lock of my head. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate and the inner court, where the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy, was located. So he's saying, do you see it? He actually grabs Ezekiel by a lock of his hair and lifts him up and says, do you see it? You see, God has an anguish. This is what's going to unfold through the book of Ezekiel is God wants to share his anguish with Ezekiel so that Ezekiel would be a man standing for him in this world with his burden. So he's going to lift him up by a lock of his hair. It would be really hard for God to lift me up by a lock of my hair, and I can't imagine the pain that would come with it if he did. But he's going to carry Ezekiel and say, do you see it? See, this is provoking to jealousy. This is God's territory. This belongs to God, and yet it is being spent on falseness, on other gods, on demons. How dare they? And he wants Ezekiel to share it. Do you see it is the question. Do we as a church, are we willing to be lifted up by a lock of our hair and have God express his anguish to us and then through us? Then, they, then he said to me, son of man, raise your eyes now toward the north. So I raised my eyes toward the north and behold, the north of the altar gate was this idol of jealousy at the entrance. And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here so that I would be far from my sanctuary. But yet you will see still greater abominations. And then it continues. In grabbed by a lock of our hair and lifted up to see. I think this is pro whether or not you would have thought to describe what the church needs right now as that. I would say that's a pretty good description of it. If we want to see a change in this world, we need to allow God to make us the church of Jesus Christ as we ought to be. And to be that, we must bear the burdens of the church of Jesus Christ. Ezekiel 9, then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice. 
Isn't that just interesting to imagine God crying out into Ezekiel's ear with a loud voice? See, many of us, you know, we're going to picture God composed. It's like, Ezekiel, I have now something else to show you. God is upset. Isn't that just a fascinating thought? God is angry. God is jealous. God is upset and angered over this abomination that is taking place in his territory. He cried out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate with faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Then the glory of the, of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which he had been. God was riding on a cherubim, uh, on cherub, on a cherub. It's uh, quite a, that's, that's how the book of, uh, Ezekiel even starts, on which it had been to the threshold of the temple, and he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case. The Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others, he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare This is such an extreme statement that most of us don't quite know what to do with it. At the same time, what I want us to take out of it is the stark difference of how God is appropriating the two groups of people in the midst of abomination. There are those that are sighing and crying, and there are those that aren't. And so when I hear that, what I desire is to be one of the sires and the criers. Like when you see sheep and goats there's a difference. What is the difference? One does, one doesn't. When you see wheat and tares, what is the difference? One does, one doesn't. One bears fruit, one doesn't. They are similar in every regard. There's a whole bunch of people in Israel, and they all look similar, but there's a distinction. One does and one doesn't. What are they doing? Sighing and crying over the abominations. Sighing and crying over the abominations. I remember when Leslie and I experienced a miscarriage. This is, uh, what would it be, 13 and a half years ago now? No, 13 years ago, right? 14 years ago. How old are you, Harper? 13, right? Okay, so 14 years ago right now, uh, September, uh, so close to right now. My response to it was incorrect. And yet, at the time, it felt very correct. I told Leslie that as Christians, we need to be marked by faith, which is true. We need to rejoice and trust God that he's in control, true. And we basically need to have a stiff upper lip and be an example to everyone else of the strength of character that the Christian has in the midst of difficulty, true. So what's wrong with Eric's response? I was missing something. I was missing the fact that there was a little life that passed away, and that mattered to God. But to allow myself to grieve over that was to weaken myself, and it didn't seem like it was marked by faith, but God had to teach me that to allow God's heart to invade mine is the essence of how faith works. That if I, I can have all the truth I could be totally right, but I need to be right with God's heart. 
And I need to care as God cares. I need to feel as God feels. And I remember having the justification, well, it was only it was five or six weeks along. It was only five or six weeks along. And that was my statement to myself. It's like, well, I'm glad it wasn't more developed than that. And God, boy, did God jump on that one. Eric, if you don't cry, who will? I have tears to shed in this earth for that life, but you are my lead instrument to do it. And you are choosing to not allow my grief that I have for that little one to enter into you. And I tell you what, God broke through in such a powerful way to show me the value of the small things. And to not just accept the fact that the enemy's getting away with highway robbery out there, but to actually care and to grieve. And I remember thinking, how many more children are not being grieved over? Because if I almost didn't grieve over my own loss, how many more are not being cared for? And so there is a, you could be so right in your response and yet so wrong. And as the church right now, I don't want us to just be right. I want us to be right with God's heart, which means we need to open ourselves up to sigh and cry over the abominations around us. So we have a stiff upper lip versus carrying grief. And I'm just going to say, guys, we have to be ready to carry grief. And there's a lot of grief in God's heart for what's going on, which is somewhat intimidating, I know. But this is what we as the body do. We're the body of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We're the eyes of Christ in this world. We're the tongue of Christ in this world. We're the ears of Christ in this world. Hands, feet of Christ. If something's going to get done, he, he wants to use his body to do it. Well, guess what? This is the heart of Christ, which means it's meant to beat with his burdens, so if this heart, the body of Christ's heart, is not beating with God's burdens, his burdens, no one is feeling what he is feeling in this earth. We are the caring device for that anguish. Isaiah 59, 12 through 15. Uh, if it seems like I'm talking about America in the year 2020, mm, yeah, uh, it's very, very similar. Our transgressions are multiplied before you. And our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God. Speaking oppression and revolt. Conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth is stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight, that there was no justice. I think it's displeasing in the Lord's eyes right now that there is no justice in this land. There is evil that is being promulgated. There are lies that are being spread. Righteousness is being broken down, and the apparatus to uphold it is being eliminated. And... We see God's response. It's displeasing in his sight. Listen to what happens next. So it says in this uh, previous verse, is now the Lord saw. The Lord is also going to see something else. He's going to see that there was no man. 
and was astonished that there was no intercessor. The word astonished is such a strong word that it actually catches us off guard. It's like, God, you know all things. Why are you astonished? Because it is right and appropriate that someone would stand up. The way he created us is to not stand by idly when this is happening. We have, we're wired within to do something. That's why he gave us these hands, these feet, these eyes, this mouth, this mind, this heart, this body. He gave us this ability to represent his cause in this earth, but he is astonished because there is no man. So the word for astonished is shaman, appalled, stunned, stupefied, awestruck, horrified. Pretty strong word. So I'll put this into our uh, amplified edition of Isaiah 59, 16. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished, appalled, stunned, stupefied, awestruck, and horrified that there was no intercessor. So what's going to happen? As it says in Isaiah 59, all right, I'm coming. I'll be the intercessor. God, the intercessor. Then his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head and put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands he will make recompense, so they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. A redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. A redeemer will come. God will not be mocked. Fact. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Right now he's being mocked. And so I'm just letting you know, God will not be mocked. Psalm 2, 1 through 4, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the ruler, look at and, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. The Lord will not be mocked. So we have the mockers. Michael Spencer, there is a major collapse of Christianity coming, Sam Harris. It is going to become too embarrassing to believe in God, Gary Wolf. We will exercise this debilitating curse of faith. Okay, now I'm going to contrast the mockers with something different. Okay, I would say the believers, but to have some fun with it, I'm going to contrast it with the mocklers. Okay, so if, if you're uh, doing the podcast, you may not know the mocklers, but the mocklers are a very dear family here at Ellerslie, and they do a lot of the work here at Ellerslie. So I'm going to give voice from the mocklers in response to the mockers. So the mocklers, Nate Mockler says, no weapon fashioned against us shall prosper. Nick Mockler says, if God is for us, who can stand against us? And then Joseph Mockler says, greater is he who is in us than he that is in this world. We need more mocklers is what we need. <laughs> Enough with the mockers. We need more of those believers. Listen to Voltaire mock. Within a hundred years, the Bible and Christianity will be swept from existence and pass into history. That was around 1778. Listen to this, guys. 
Norman Geisler and William Nixon, one of their books says, only 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society used Voltaire's press and house to produce stacks of Bibles. God will not be mocked. If believers believe, then God will do amazing things. The question is, what is our position in the midst of this? Are we cowering or are we believing? Isaiah 58, 8. This is talking about the chosen fast, which is different than just fasting from food. This is fasting from unrighteousness, putting away evil. Then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Oh, we could use that now. But it was a chosen fast, a deliberate choosing of the saints of God to gain again the heart of God towards sin, towards unrighteousness, towards the the weak in the womb, towards the poor and the least and the widow. All of that is wrapped up in it. When the saints of God once again adopt the heart of God, then their light will break forth like the dawn. 2 Chronicles 7, 13 through 15. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or if I command the locusts to devour the land or if I send pestilence among my people and my people who are called and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place that is spoken to Solomon in the dedication of the temple of God. And we are that temple. Listen to the last line, just recognizing that as we pray in the name of Jesus, knowing truly that we have become the dwelling place of God. Listen to the last line. Now my ears will be open and my ears attentive. Did I say ears open? Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. The place isn't the building, isn't the chapel. It's the body of Christ. It's us. And if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, they will pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will heal their land. What to do when the edict is issued for your imminent destruction? You guys have read the edict, right? The church is doomed. You have, you know, you've heard Michael Spencer say, yeah, we're falling to pieces. You've heard uh, Sam Harris, neuroscientist, remember the really smart guy, say that it's going to be too embarrassing. I mean, Christianity can't keep going like this. Ha! You've heard Gary Wolf. I mean, there are, there's an opposition that is militant against Christianity. So what are we supposed to do? Should we panic? Should we give way to fear? Has our God, like, sort of lost his edge on this whole thing? Did he get dethroned somehow? Because last time I checked, he was seated at the right hand of majesty and all things were beneath his feet. So I don't really care what Michael Spencer has to say, what Sam Harris, Harris, neuroscientist, has to say, or what Gary Wolf has to say. I care what God has to say. So what's our response? There are two simultaneous responses For the tearing down of truth, righteousness, and justice, we grieve, we humble ourselves, we fast, we pray. For the tearing down of our own personal lives, 
we shout with thanksgiving and we rejoice that we are counted worthy to suffer for our king. Doesn't that sound like two contradictory responses? They're two different things that are happening. One is a destruction of truth and righteousness and justice in the world in which we live. And we are grieved over that idol of jealousy that is sitting in God's place in this world. And we grieve over that. But if they come to touch Eric and to strip from Eric my life and to tear me down, I rejoice. And so what you're going to see is the same exact principle in Scripture. Ignatius, the disciple of John, when he is told he is going to be fed to the wild beasts, rejoices. And he considers the lions his friends. He he declares that his salvation has finally come. Well, that's a strange response. Don't you realize they're tearing down your life? And Ignatius also knows the greatest privilege a Christian has is to give up their life, is to be asked for their very life. Remember Germanicus. So as, I don't want to say legend, but as legend would have it, Christian legend would have it, when he was in the arena with the beasts, he sprinted towards them. Who does that? Sprinted towards them? Listen to this statement from Fox's Book of Martyrs in 162 AD. Germanicus, a young man but a true Christian, being delivered to the wild beasts on account of his faith, behaved with such astonishing courage that several pagans became converts to a faith which inspired such fortitude. You see, if we handle this situation personally, it doesn't matter what's happening to us, but we handle it with an astonishing courage. It actually will change the world around us. But what do we do as a corporate body in response to the encroachment of evil? 2 Chronicles 7, 13 through 15. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who were called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. So we have a pattern of how we are supposed to handle the encroachment of evil in our nation. And it involves a humbling of ourselves, an acknowledgement of our failure as the church. It can feel a little strange, you know, when we pray on behalf of our nation, Lord, forgive us for the grievous sin that we've committed against you. And you'd be like, why would I say that? I didn't do it. I never had an abortion. And yet we are sharing in something. Just as Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, as he's oftentimes known, is going to share in Israel's judgment. He is going to be in the midst of it pleading. And he's going to experience the very effects of judgment upon a nation. It's like, why? He didn't do it. He was actually telling them to repent. So are we sharing in the impact of a nation around us that has gone rogue from God. We have been entrusted with truth and we are rejecting it. This is not an unusual pattern in history. This is what the devil does. However, there's another pattern in history, and that is what the church does. We have something to do in this situation, and it is significant, and it should not be understated. God will raise up an intercessor, like David, in a time when Goliath is boasting, and it looks like there is no answer to the evil that is encroaching upon Israel. And suddenly, a little shepherd boy is going to be delivering bread and cheese to the battle. 
But that shepherd boy was prepared for such an hour as this. Like Joseph, drought is going to hit the people and the nation of Israel, is, which wasn't officially a nation yet, the sons of Jacob, and they are going to be vulnerable to being destroyed. I mean, how, how can they survive this? This beginning movement of grace needs to be served, needs help. Where's, where's God going to do it? How is he going to do it? He's going to raise up a deliverer. He's going to raise up Joseph. And like Esther, Haman has his plot, but in the midst of that, God has a solution. Listen to the Nachmanides, the 13th century rabbi. Precisely at the time where one king arises to pillage our possessions and destroy us, another shall arise to protect and save us. This is an important lesson for future generations. So where I first heard that quote was after World War II, when the Jews are going to acknowledge that Winston Churchill was raised up to actually stand in the gap on their behalf. Now, I know some of you may be thinking I'm talking about Trump. You know, that Trump is like maybe who's been raised up, and I'm not going to even make a comment on that because that's not what this message is about. I want to talk about someone far greater than Trump. Throughout history, God will raise up an intercessor, capital I, his name is Jesus. And so Jesus was raised up for us, and he wants to raise up someone else in this generation like him. You're like, well, how does that work? It's called the body of Christ. We are his chosen vehicle. When we look around and we're like, well, God, where are they? Where, is the one, where are the ones that need to stand up? Uh, excuse me. We are the body of Christ. We are the ones entrusted with the word of God who believe it. What if we were to do it? What if we were to humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways? What if we allowed God to start with us and we allowed his burden and his grief to actually enter into us? That's where it begins. Kana, which is the word for humble yourself. So if my people will humble themselves, it means to submit oneself, to lower in sight of a greater, to decrease. It actually means in a visual sense to bend the knee. And so for us, if I could just say, if we could take anything out of this, I want you to handle the pillaging of your own goods the way Ignatius and Germanicus did. That if your life is impacted personally, that you sprint towards it with joy. However, as a body, we need to be a carrier for God's burden right now and his grief. And I don't want us to shy away from that. I want us to welcome it and even ask for it today. I want us to bend our knee before the living God, humble ourselves and pray and seek his face to call upon the Lord of mercy to heal our land. Father, with shoes removed, I stand before you. And I say, bring us into this season, this new season that is beginning, that is opening up before us. Whichever way it goes, Lord, we say yes. We embrace it with joy. 
But Lord, we want to be the body of Christ as you define us, as you desire us. And we desire for your burdens to be our burdens, for your grief to be our grief, for your anguish to be our anguish. Lord, we don't want to shirk this. We want to embrace this. Lord, mercy triumphs over judgment. That is a fact in your kingdom. And Lord, though we are undeserving of mercy, you have given it to us so many times. And Lord, we have spat back in your face as a nation. You have shed your grace on us. And yet, Lord, we have forgotten you. We have turned from you. We have used your holy name, which is the name above all names, as a curse word, as a filth word. Lord, forgive us for the slaughter of innocence, for the trafficking of lies, for the trafficking of sensuality. Lord, forgive us for hosting any of this darkness in ourselves, for attempting to be approved by the world instead of first and foremost desiring to be approved by you even if it means to lose the approval of the world. Lord Jesus, correct us. We don't want to look outside the doors of this building. We want you to deal with us where we are right now and make us fit to share the goodness of the gospel in this world today with boldness and courage. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.